Hello and welcome to Data Radicals. In today's episode, Satyan sits down with Trisha Wong. Trisha is a pioneer in thick data, which captures what numbers cannot. Her TED Talk, The Human Insights Missing from Big Data, has been viewed nearly two million times. Today, she helps major companies like Netflix learn from thick data to improve their business. In this episode, Trisha reveals the power of thick data, the value of digital personhood, and why quantification bias is dangerous to growth. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. Meet us at Snowflake Summit this June. We'll uncover how Alation cuts through the complexity to help you find valuable insights in the data cloud. Learn how leading enterprises in every industry are using cloud migration to drive innovation and efficiencies. Snowflake Summit runs from June 26th to the 29th. Attend virtually or in person in Las Vegas. We can't wait to connect. Learn more at snowflake.com slash summit. Trisha Wong is a technology ethnographer obsessed with designing equity into systems. A data geek, designer, and community organizer, she believes technology must serve humanity. As the co-founder of consultancy Sudden Compass, Trisha has helped companies like Netflix, Spotify, and Google to embrace qualitative data for business growth. Trisha, welcome to Data Radicals. Hello. So excited to be on. So you have a pretty unique title with this, I guess, notion of being a tech ethnographer, and that's not something that I've ever heard anybody call themselves. Can you describe what that is and how that came to exist? Yes. I made it up completely. So that's why you've never heard of it because there's only one tech ethnographer, even though I wish people would take the job title. But I made this up because when I finished grad school, even though I had been working in industry and in research labs with engineers and with people who are in charge of data, I couldn't find a job. And I know I was a bit naive, but I had this idea that like, as a sociologist, I'm trained in quantum qual. I worked in industry in the private sector. So I really wanted to head at the department that would be in charge of all data, qualitative and quantitative. And it was naive because when what I really found out was that inside companies, these departments are highly siloed and data is very politicized. And you have a department that is in charge of data, but it's actually quantitative data. So chief data officers are not in charge of all data. It is only data that has been quantified. And I was like, well, that's ridiculous because quantified data only tells you half the story. And especially if businesses want to grow and they want to be ready for the unknown, you always want to be prepared for the thing that your competitor doesn't know about. So you need to be ahead of the trends and ahead of anything that's actually already shown up on the market. So you really want to understand the unquantified data, the ethnographically derived data. So ethnography is literally just the science of observing and studying people of society. And so I was like, well, I want a job that's in charge of all of it the qualitative and the quantitative, and surely I can find a business leader or a set of executives or boardroom leaders who will give me this job, right, to oversee all data. And wow, was I really naive. Like, I could not convince anyone to give me that job. Everyone was like, well, you can be the head of qualitative data, of like qualitative research. And I was like, why would I want that? I would only then have half of the information. I want to be able to, in an agile way, work with qualitative and quantitative data very quickly to tell a whole story. And people just laughed me out. I had recruiters talking to me and, and they were honest. They were like, you will never 
find that job. And so then I was like, you know what? I guess I'm jobless. I'll just start writing about what I'm seeing and I'll start becoming more public about the perils of only focusing on numbers. And mind you, this is in the mid 2010s, you know? So big data had just become a thing and people were obsessed with big data. So it's like, I was that weird person who was seen as a data hater, but I wasn't. I was just like, I'm a sociologist. First and foremost, I'm trained in numbers and also deriving stories that are not quant- like, you know, data that's not quantified. So why would it you have both? So I just started writing about what I experienced at Nokia. And I was like, well, what do I call myself? Because you need to call yourself something in this world. <laughs> Otherwise, people don't, don't recognize your skills. So I was like, well, I'm an ethnographer. I study people. But also, I study what people are doing with technology. And I do this globally. So I kind of just made up the title. And somehow, it stuck. I don't know why, because no one can say the word ethnographer. And I even get tongue-twisted at times. But somehow, the title stuck. And I can't even get rid of it now. So now, I'm like, okay, whatever. People will call me a global tech ethnographer. It is what I do. And it makes people ask me what it is and what my point of view is on it. So that's how I got the titles because like, I couldn't find a job. Yeah. And, and I think it's by having a new title, everybody asks you what you do and it's a way of catching people's interest and curiosity, which is pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. But put simply, it's the study of people and how they use technology. Yeah, exactly. Quite simple. What's funny to me about how you described your work is that it sounds a lot like entrepreneurship. If you think about a entrepreneur who's building a company, or even you know my own experience in building a company, a lot of what you identify is pre-macro trend. Like there's something small going on that a couple of people are doing, exactly. and you discover it, you find it, and you have stories that you can tie yourself to. But if it was measurable, then somebody else would already be doing it. So you don't really do that. You're focused on this much smaller, bleeding edge cohort that ultimately becomes something larger. And so my guess is that a lot of this work that in the Valley we call customer discovery, there's a guy named Steve Blank that talks a lot about that, is very similar to what you do. And you're you know, really at the cutting edge of trying to identify trends that maybe people aren't always seeing in the numbers, which is super cool. Has that parallel ever come to you? Or is that something that anybody's ever brought up? Yeah. And I'm in the area of customer trend discovery. That's one way to like refer to what the formal field is in the private sector. But the trend discovery work is often seen as R&D or a bit far from the product or far from the business. And the reason why I think it's really critical that this kind of work cannot be seen as separate from the strategy of the company. So you actually need a direct line to the chief growth officer or the CEO or the boardroom. And oftentimes these roles are relegated to like some junior marketing role, some analyst role where you have people who aren't really connected to saying, hey, this is what we've learned. How do we correlate this and scale these insights with quantitative data? So that was a skill set that we set Encompass, my firm has been teaching, working with chief data officers and CTOs and CIOs and chief marketing officers, depending on who brings us in, we say this kind of skill set of understanding the full picture, which means you have to be able to go back and forth between the quant and the qual, and then you have to be able to ladder that all up to strategy and then execution. That's tons of organizational work that you have to do. And you know, a lot of politicking because you have to be able to map the organization, understand all of politics, all of people's fears. And you're really pushing the boundaries because you're saying it's not business as usual. So it's, it's an incredibly hard job. So I would say it's partially the definition, but I would say customer discovery work is often not seen as strategic and it's more like, oh, that's nice to have, but not critical to the business or strategic enough 
to be in conversation with the actual strategy. Yeah. And to make it tangible, can you give some examples about some projects that sort of are doing this kind of work so people can understand what you mean by mixing quant and qual and early stage discovery? Yeah. I mean, a really great example is, let's just say the Data Radicals podcast, right? You are all on Spotify now. Well, Spotify was one of our clients. And if you recall, when Spotify first launched, it was not into podcasts at all. It was a music platform, music discovery platform, music streaming platform. And then it moved into music discovery, right? Helping you discover other artists. They would use their machine learning to help you create personalized recommendations. But one of the things that they had asked us to do is they said, we really need to understand what's coming next, what areas should Spotify grow into, and how are we at risk of being disrupted? And one of the key things that we did when we worked with their executives is that we said, well, let's really understand what are people's relationships to music. And in an agile way, we actually said that is not even the question to ask. We worked with their machine learning team. They have some of the best machine learning. And we said, look, let's understand how people click through their music and let's actually understand all the behaviors. But at the same time, let's talk to people. Let's live with people. Let's understand how people integrate music into their lives. And one of our first insights to them a week into the work was we were like, listen, We don't even think music is what you should be focusing on for Spotify. You really need to look at what's taking up all of the audio time and visual time. It's really about like the attention economy. What is capturing people's attention? And then seeing Spotify within that attention economy. And so we worked with them to map out everyone's attention and spread of attention between Netflix from all the platforms, right? Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, to podcasts. And we actually said, your biggest competitor is all of these other things that are not music. Because the more options that people have, the less time they have for music, right? The less time they come back to the music. And what we helped them understand was that to move into a whole new vertical, which is that they were like, oh, maybe we're not just a music streaming platform. Maybe we are a platform to help people discover all other kinds of audio experiences. It's not just music artists. So they actually redefine the business that they're in, which is like, they're not just a music streaming platform, but they're actually there to help you discover all kinds of audio experiences. And that insight was something that came from our research. Already, there were hunches by executives that we should maybe go in other directions, but they didn't really have a strong angle on that. But our research helped with that. And then they did the quantitative studies to really work with that. And then we did experiments and worked with their data science team. So all of these things, we had to correlate back and forth. We had to work closely. We were the bridge between the data science team and also the market research team that really did that. The goal was really to elevate the role of the market researchers so that they could have the skills and be seen as the partners of the machine learning team. Yeah, it's really interesting because it it's sort of the micro of a macro tone that we identified on a former podcast. So we had a guy named Paul Leonardi, who is a professor at Santa Barbara, and he basically talked a lot about how technologies are often not used in the way the makers intend. And so only 20% of the time is the tech actually used in the way that people had actually intended for it to be built. And so it's super interesting to get these profound observations at this massive level of scale for products like Spotify, where you'd think they know exactly what was going on with their platform. So you mentioned you were a sociologist, and you mentioned that you sort of made up this title for yourself. How did you then turn this into a consultancy or a business? What was the evolution to making this something that other people would recognize? So I have a really weird background in that I've never 
tried to have a career path and it's really odd. It looks like I had a career path when you read my bio. For some people, it's like, oh, I've worked with so many organizations. But first and foremost, I started out in my early days in New York as a filmmaker. I used to work for NASA, for Sally Ride, and I used to also be a community organizer working in low-income communities, making sure people had access to media and technology. So my work is always about building equity But I was led into the corporate world because I realized that that is where many decisions are made and they affect great numbers of people, that corporations, what they do well is they scale. And I took all my storytelling abilities from being a filmmaker and learn how to piece together stories and tell stories about science because that's what NASA is like, you know, some of the best scientists in the world. And I realized that that was like an area where if society is obsessed with data and data is going to structure so much of our lives and determine many of the ways that we are human, that I have to work with the private sector. And eventually, even though I couldn't get a job internally, I had many people email me, reach out to me from Fortune 500 companies just saying, hey, like, we can't give you a job internally because there's no way you're just going to all of a sudden like be in charge of this team that doesn't even exist. But could you help us get these teams to talk better to each other inside the organization? The ask would come in two forms. Either it was like, could you help us elevate qual? Because I really think that's the missing thing to help us grow our business. And we don't know how to get these new insights or businesses stale, or we're not seeing the growth we want. And it would be a champion who would be like, I know I've seen it time and time again, that every time our business has had massive levels of growth, when our executives or some team has some kind of qualitative on the ground insight and then is able to get the whole team to execute, right? So they'd be like, we need your help because we've gone too far to the quant side where we only make decisions on quant and we're completely paralyzed. Or it would be coming from the other ask would say, well, could you actually help our quantitative team? They wouldn't even think qual was part of the answer. They would just be like, oh, we have a group of data scientists. And it was a very forward-looking chief data scientist who would say, I want to make sure I'm really proving the value of our work to the business. And they knew they had a timeline. They're like, right now I've got a budget. I've only got a couple of years though to really demonstrate the value of my team, our headcount, our budget. And I want it to grow. I want to make sure we're useful to the business. And you talked about that data can help business grow. You talked about this thing called qualitative ethnography. Just, just come over and like help us elevate the value of our work to the rest of the business. Help us integrate and help us like show that we can be of service. And so depending on who brings us in, whether it's the chief data officer, the tech side versus the chief marketing officer, oftentimes, or maybe just the CEO, we would find ways to essentially be that bridge in the company. Mm. And so eventually, I just had so many clients that I was like, I guess we have a consulting firm. It was like a total accident, all because I couldn't get a job. And there weren't leaders like you then. It was a field that was just beginning. And like the big data way, people were obsessed. And so I think now if I were going onto the job market, because I think I've created the world, I think I had been an influential role in this space of helping data chief data officers in the field of data, at least a portion of people I've been able to influence to understand the importance of qualitative. And you know, that's why I invented the word thick data, because I was like, I have to communicate, I have to rebrand ethnography and qualitative data. And like no one thinks it's a sexy. Everyone thinks big data is the sexiest thing. So I have to rebrand it and figure out a way to make it look just as important as big data. And so I've been one of the contributors to this world. And I think I would have a much easier time now if I were on the job market looking to do what I want to do. Yeah. And you called this kind of 
qualitative data, thick data in a TED Talk that you delivered. Tell us a little bit more about that concept and what is thick data and how does it work? Thick data is essentially any forms of data that has not been quantified or is difficult to quantify. So oftentimes the things that we see in big data, any forms of numbers has always started out as a human phenomenon, as a social phenomenon. So it first emerges as a thing that has yet to be quantified and then humans figure out ways to capture that as numbers. So it's like a smile is not quantified, but using measurements and pixels and everything, you can be like, oh, like the lips went up this much. So we can quantify that. And then we can measure that the curve of the face. And so using facial recognition, and then somehow someone makes an interpretation to say that is a smile, and therefore a smile means happiness or whatever. However, you don't know if that smile means happiness, because maybe someone is smiling because they're anxious, maybe because they are in a fearful position. Like if you are a black person or a darker skinned person, and a cop has stopped you, and you're smiling to get them to try and create safety and to make sure that they don't perceive you as dangerous. So there's all these assumptions that we make with measurement that are not true, right? But we had to quantify that. So all thick data is, is the stuff that has yet to be quantified or is difficult to quantify and that you need the human experience, a social interaction to observe that. Think about your childhood. Imagine capturing your childhood as a spreadsheet, as a database. If you had a pretty great childhood, if you had parents that they hugged you or told you that you were valuable or loved and like you did something important or like you can count all the times that you slept at a home with actual shelter. But that doesn't really capture your childhood, right? That's not the full experience. It captures a part of the story. So I always tell people, like, try and put your childhood in a spreadsheet versus then tell me about your childhood. Both experiences, the both representations of your childhood are valid. I'm not saying the spreadsheet version is not valid, but that tells a part of the story. And the qualitative, like you telling me about your childhood, those are your memories. They may not be accurate, but that was how you perceive it. That's also one representation. So imagine if you put the both together. I don't know how many people want to quantify their childhood. Maybe they can now. But in a business setting, I'm saying that you need to have both. You have to have the quantification of your customers or whatever the product is you're selling, the interactions. But you need to always be open to the unknown, and which is those are things that have not yet been quantified. And then once you surface the unknown in the form of thick data, and if you want to validate it at scale, if you're like, well, six people told us this, or I observed one person doing this, but I wonder if there's more people, you may want to launch a bigger study. And then eventually you may want to collect more quantitative data, or it may make you look at your existing data, your quantitative data in a whole new light. It may enable you to ask new questions or realize, oh, we have a product that we have yet to even develop that our customers are asking for. So where do you start a project with the intent to gather thick data? Because it can be, if you have obviously all of this quantitative richness, you're measuring things. And now you're going into a world where you're actually trying to get the unmeasured almost definitionally. How does one start this process? And I guess give us a little bit of a sense of the texture of the work. When you start a project, how do you know what your domain is? How do you start to develop a set of questions? Who do you go to? How do you choose that? This is the question that people ask me all the time. Just like, how do I start? And I'm like, you always start where the pain is in the business. Because you should never start a thick data project just for the fun of it. I mean, unless you have tons of time, you know, and you have some kind of lab, but like usually most businesses, there's stuff to be done. There are OKRs, there are objectives and like people are busy. And so I always say, you know, like 
If you really want to make sure that you're not missing anything, and you know, I say thick data is always needed, but where's the pain of the business? And so as an example, one of the stories I always tell is with Procter & Gamble. When I started working with them, their business was doing great. They had no pain. But someone smart enough reached out to me and said, we're going to be launching one of our products into an urban area. And I know we don't know anything about the urban area because our products are sold and bought in suburban areas and homes that are humongous and with like multi rooms and big families and big cars and like garages and stuff. So thinking about Procter & Gamble, where they are a consumer product goods company, like they make Tide, they make cleaning products, but they're in the consumer product space. So that was like the specific business question they had. And they said, look, we can collect all the first party and third party data we want about urban areas. We've hired all the consulting firms, the big four to do analysis on like our go to market, how we should enter and like what's the first market and all the data to justify them entering into a new market to justify that budget. But they had said, I'm really worried that we literally just don't even know who the customer is. Who is their urban customer? And they're like, we have all these assumptions. And so I was like, yeah, then that's where the pain was at. And so every business is different, but it really has to be start with the question. And it usually has something to do with growth. So it's like, if you want to grow more, if you're like looking for the way to grow, then start there. And at that point, they were like, our main agency of record is about to launch a campaign in urban areas. They're telling us to do this thing, but we want to confirm that their campaign is going to really help us sell the product and enter the market in the right way. And our and what was crazy is that they could have just trusted the agency. They could have just said the agency knows what they're doing, right? This is their agency of record that's always worked with them and made them successful. But they were like, we just want to double check and we want to feel confident. So I was like, you know what? This is such a big entrance. You know, this is like such a big new thing you're doing. Why don't we get all your executives of this product? Why don't you all just travel to New York? Let's pick an urban area. And it was Tide that was a product. And I said, why don't you just live in New York for two days? And why don't you bring your laundry? Just bring your laundry and see what happens and try to do your laundry. And that completely changed their minds about the ad campaign, how they're going to launch, how they even spend their money, because they realized that the advertising campaign that they had treated doing laundry as like a really terrible thing that New Yorkers didn't want to do. And it is terrible. Who wants to do laundry in a public space with like millions of other people, right? However, when you have to do something terrible, you find a way to make do and to find it to be a joyful thing, or maybe you find a way to at least make it worth your while. And so when I had them do was I was like, just spend time in laundry places where you do like actually just go and spend your time there doing your laundry in these semi-public spaces and see what happens. And what we learned together was that people would go and who would do the laundry, they would treat that as a time that they can call their parents. They would read a novel. It was their way outside of their small apartment, you know, away from their roommates. It was a way off the computer. People would get dressed up and like, it was like a Tinder in real life where they would meet other people and like check other people out and, you know, ask people on dates. Like the place of doing laundry was this rich, became this very rich social space that's just like a part of the New York City fabric. And there was no way they would have known that. And they came back and they told their advertising agency, scrap it and like come up with a new campaign. And their executives had confidence. And of course, they tested out this campaign on making sure that they had the numbers to actually demonstrate the effectiveness of the new campaign. But you know, that's a very specific story of how Thick Data was launched. But other times and other clients we've had, launching of Thick Data is not like launching a product, but it's actually just about trying to help people understand maybe like with HR, what are we missing with our employee retention? So it really depends on 
what is the business case and the business question? I think the emergent theme from my perspective is, and bridging back to sort of some of the entrepreneurship comments, is just this idea of getting out of the building. Like often you are in your analytical space, you think the data that you have is all the data that describes everything that's happening in the world. And of course, the world is much richer than can be stored in a database, however large it might be. That fundamental recognition of getting people to sort of get out of the building often doesn't play well with people who might be comfortable with their numbers or like might not want to do that. Is that a struggle in your work? Do you find that you have to like sort of evangelize this idea of just getting people out of their chairs? Yeah, it is a struggle in some cases, especially where there's no pressure or the data team doesn't feel pressure to deliver more tangible results. And I would say a lot of times data teams are not properly leveraged. And one of your past guests, Carolyn Cruthers, who wrote the Chief Data Officer's Playbook, one of the things she talks a lot about was like, just take people out to lunch in the organization and like understand their problems. And I would say you need to do the same of customers. Like you have to spend time with your customers and even non-customers. So depending on how business oriented and tied to the product the data team is, then it comes down to the leadership. If your chief data officer actually feels the need to be close to the business and really make sure that everyone understands the customers, and those are the easiest people for us to work with because they immediately are like, yeah, we get what you're saying and we can implement this new way of doing work, which is like getting people out of the office, right? And like spending time with their customers or just being curious. And the more difficult part is when it's clear that the chief data officer, they don't feel the pressure to really prove to the company their value. And oftentimes data is seen as a vanity department and they're not being fully leveraged or it's more like they need to have it because of course, every modern organization, every Fortune 500 company has a data department, but it really depends. It really comes down to leadership, but you're right that there's a culture of amongst programmers and people who use computers a lot, like analysts even, that their value depends on how much time they sit in front of the computer. And so if their bosses and managers don't see them at their desk, then they're not delivering value. So much of our work as Set Encompass, of my work is in coaching and not just leaders, but like middle managers to be like, you have to give your workers the freedom and really just outline clear deliverables and clear objectives and give people the freedom to get there and the tools to get there. And one of those tools is spending time with your customers. Another tool is working with the qualitative people in your company, which means they're oftentimes not in your department. They're the marketing department. They might be the design department. They might be the customer service people. Like people need the freedom to talk to other people in the organization. And, but it's so crazy that like these large fiefdoms, these kingdoms, the departments within are so siloed and it gets so, it's like crazy. I, I think the craziest thing that I always get the reaction to when I talk to data people is there, I'm like, pick up the phone and talk to your customer service agent. They're like, what? The customer service, like the people in India or like Philippines or like whoever we've outsourced our customer service work to, or, or you know, whatever, like maybe it's someone in Kentucky, right? Because it's oftentimes that is seen as a lower value and then like they're not being paid as much. But I'm like, those are your most valuable people. Or if you run a store, actually go talk to the people who stock the shelves and like interact with customers all day. And that to me, that's like the hardest thing to get people to do. Really, they're just like, how would I even do that? Like, just pick up the phone, email. I'm like, figure it out. You're in the same company, you know, but that's the hardest. That is hard. And what do you even start to ask these people? Like, what is your job? What's hard about your job? Are there certain like easy questions to ask that are the start for that conversation? 
Yeah. Just like treating them as a human being. If you're leading with your curiosity and you know, if you know that somehow, even before you go in, you have to actually have that least of belief that maybe they know something you don't know, you know, about the customers because they're the ones who hear from the customers. The email support people who reply on Zendesk, they're not paid nearly as much as you, but they sure as hell know a lot more about their customers than you do. And you may have access to all the quantitative data, but they can tell you why you're getting some kind of trend or behavioral, whatever statistic you're seeing, right? They can tell you why. And so if you go in with that curiosity of like, hey, I'm trying to understand something because surely there's no way you know why you're getting the data points back that you're getting. You may know what the data points are like, well, however percentage people do this or the drop-off rate is this or retention rate is this or people sign up more on the, at this time or stay on longer during this time or this country region, but you don't necessarily know why. And you may even think you know why, but you would want to maybe confirm that with the people who are closest to the customers. And so I would say, just talk to people and be like, what do you do? What do people talk to you about? What do you see customers doing? What do they come to you for? Or, or like, I'm seeing this trend, here's this data point, 80% of people drop off in month three after they have the free trial, but they happen to be ones who are in employee and companies that are size one to 10. I'm just making that up, right? And then you can be like, why do you think that is? And they might have some ideas and you just keep talking to people and try and piece the story together so that you can tell a whole story. So I would say lead with your curiosity and you can even straight up like be like, this is the data point I'm seeing. Can, do you have any sense of what's going on? Like, let's talk about that. Yeah, it's funny because I relate to a lot of what you're speaking about. I mean, one of the things that I try to do is with our employees and even with many of our customers, just do one-on-ones to just figure out like what's going on. And I try to keep them very broad-based, but it helps me get texture in a world where as the company has grown, you don't necessarily have sort of ground level truth. And so you've got numbers and you've got people's representation of the truth, but you don't necessarily have what is happening day to day on the ground. And I find those are some of the most valuable meetings that I can have overall. And it helps me learn. And frankly, it's a good reminder for me to do them more often. Yeah. And do you do them across the organization at all levels? Actually, mostly I try to do them at the lowest possible level if I can. I mean, obviously I let them be open, but I want it to be not so much management or middle management because I mean, those are people that I talk to anyways. I think it's mostly the people who are doing the work, whether they're line salespeople or engineers or customer support folk. And that's obviously internally. And then externally, you want to do it with a broad variety of customers, both the people who are doing the work day to day with the tool, but also the people who are sponsoring in the account. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I think it's also fair to say that I find that you know, some of those meetings are not very useful. Some of them, you have to actually kind of wade through a whole bunch of stuff before you start to get to trends. So there's a little bit of patience that I find that's required in the work. Is that what your experience is? Yeah, because it's a thick data point. It's like you get really deep on one person's experience, but you don't know if that's the same as another person or another person. So this is why for ethnographers, we develop tools like creating archetypes because you kind of have to start figuring out, well, there's a pattern here and there's a pattern here because your whole goal is to surface patterns. This is essentially the qualitative version of artificial intelligence, which is like you're looking for the patterns and you're trying to pattern match, you know, you're trying to sort out what are the buckets of stuff. So it's not easy. There's no obvious thing because you can't talk to one person and she's like, oh, I, I got it. You know, you actually have to talk to multiple people and to really get down to the nugget of the insight that will be actionable for your business context. Because you can might be like, oh, that was a cool insight. 
or cool pattern, but it may not even be relevant for your business or like it may not be relevant for the strategy of the moment that you are trying to execute or it may challenge your strategy. And in particular, I can only imagine how hard it is in your world right now, especially where customer buying cycles are longer, right? There's a Gartner research recently that, you know, I gave a talk with them last year where they released a report where it's like, there's now longer buying cycles and there's lower trust in vendors and customers don't know how to measure success. And so it's like really hard to get people to pull the trigger on a buy, especially for enterprise technology right now. It's just more complicated. And then you're throwing in then now we don't have as many conference gatherings where people would come together to build trust in person with a sales team. And so there's a whole new way of the digital sales room now where a lot of companies have to reinvent themselves and a lot of data companies, enterprise software companies are really communication companies. They're, they have to have this developed all this new skill set, which is not just building a great tool to use, but to build a whole new way to translate and make their tool relevant to potential buyers and to maintain their existing buyers. So I think what you're doing is so key and every CEO, every C-level executive at any kind of data company should be doing what you're doing, which is being out there and talking to your own team also. I mean, really any company, right? You always got to talk to your employees and you always got to talk to your customers. And and I think that's a practice to develop. And, and it's obviously something to remind ourselves of. You talk about this idea of codification bias. Tell us more about that. What is that? And, and you kind of touched on it, but I think it's a, it's a great term to have in people's arsenal. Yeah. So the quantification bias is something that I observed. I didn't have a word for it, but I first observed it when I was at Nokia, where I saw that teams, leaders, everyone was so unable to see and validate and value and interrogate any form of data unless it came in the form of numbers. And they weren't even really willing to interrogate their numbers that much. They would just take the numbers at face value. And what I observed was that this really hurt companies and it put them in a very risky position because it meant that they weren't open to things that weren't quantified. And it's the unknown that helps you grow and helps you figure out if you're going to be disrupted. And I saw this so closely at Nokia that I experienced it with my own eyes. How is it that the world's largest cell phone company that was predicted to dominate forever? And how is it that they could just disappear? And why is it that we're we're holding these iPhones now and not these Nokia smartphones? And I was a witness to that. So that was such an important formative part of my career that I was like, how could such smart leaders, smart executives just refuse to see the value of anything that is not already in a chart or in a spreadsheet or in some kind of database, right? And so I put a name to it because I saw that as a trend among so many companies that I was interviewing, trying to get a job at, where people were like, well, we already have numbers. Why would we need to not know anything that isn't quantified? It shocked me that like such smart people would say this. And so that's why I was like, oh, clearly this is a new emergent 21st century bias that is a bias of the big data age, right? Is this bias against anything that has not already been represented in the form of numbers? And my whole point is that this actually is is incredibly dangerous for companies, in particular companies that want to maintain their growth or continue growing. Yeah, because I mean, the companies are essentially, as you pointed out, built to scale things. And that scale is a system and the system is built to replicate itself and optimize itself. And all of that is measurable. So if you get into a place where there's just something orthogonal to the company or to the system, then people are just like, ah, not my thing. Yeah, it's like organ rejection. Yeah, totally. 
And I think, you know, their incentive compensation structures obviously align to all of that. So it makes you like almost willfully blind. Yes. I always say that my job with threaten executives, my job as the person coming in to, you know, help companies better use their data to advise companies on that, it would threaten their houses on Lake Cuomo. And what I mean by that is that when you have reached such a high level in your career, you have already bought your summer home and your retirement home on Lake Cuomo. You don't want anything, anything new could threaten that. And that is exactly what I experienced at Nokia. And I've seen time and time again, is that you have to take that kind of psychology into account when you are trying to do any kind of change management. And this is why digital transformation is so hard. This is why I have a job and why we have so many clients is because when you get to a certain level, you don't want to change because if you have enough assets and things are at stake, you're depending on this value of your stock and a certain kind of package. Trying something new that sounds out of left field that the culture or the business environment doesn't value, that is not seen as like the jour of the moment, right? Because like big data and AI is everything. And here I am talking about talk to humans. When I'm not selling them a data product, they're very shocked, even though I'm saying you need the quantitative data, but they can't, it's as if they can't hear it. And it puts a lot of that, what they've invested their lives in at risk. And so there's a psychology to a lot of this work which is why I think the best data officers and best data leaders, let's just say, are ones who really understand that their work, it's all about communication, that like coming up with like really good data and like understanding your data structure and lakes and warehouses and all that stuff and getting the right vendors and partners, that's half of the job. And the other half is getting everyone on board to use it, you know, yeah. and to feel not threatened by it. So like part of your job is to like really make sure people feel comfortable with what you're introducing them to. Well, I'll bridge to something totally different, but I think an area of your interest in terms of threatening technologies, which is the world of Web3. You've obviously done a lot of work in this area. Lots of people don't understand it. Lots of people think it's a trend and a fad. And why is this an area of interest for you? And can you tell us a little bit about your work and how you think it's applicable in the Web3 domain? I'm still trying to understand it, but I have always been fascinated by the idea around decentralization as another way of operating. So much of our world right now is top down, it's centralized. And I'm not saying that decentralization is good or bad and that centralization is like some kind of bad thing, right? I'm just fascinated by another organizing structure. And so what Web3 is, there's many definitions of it, but my definition, the way I see it is just that it is about developing new forms of getting stuff done and that is more about distributed networks and decentralization and just essentially non-hierarchical forms of getting stuff done, whether it's with like currency or ownership of real estate, you know, instead of one person owning it all, maybe you fractionalize it and make it easy for multiple people to own. So there's a lot of discussions around like Web3 could bring more equitable forms of access, right, to whatever it is. And so I was really lost though and fascinated at the same time because I was like, everyone was like, blockchain will solve everything. And I've been around the block long enough to know that that is not the case and that there was a lot of ideology around it. So I didn't fall prey to it. I remember early days of internet, I was definitely like, oh my God, the internet is so cool. Once we're all online, then you know everyone will have a job and it'll be so easy to find information. And of course, like over time, I was like, that's ridiculous, Trisha, because like no technology can just solve everything. And once you introduce something 
new, it always creates a new cascade of other problems to solve, right? And so I saw the same rhetoric with the internet. I experienced it myself. And then I saw the same rhetoric with, let's say, like social media. Like once everyone's connected on social media, we're, we're all going to be great. And it's like, no, we have lots of wars right now. And misinformation has not necessarily made society better. And then I saw the same thing with VR and AI. Same thing, which is like, here's a new shiny tool. And like, it's going to solve all these issues and no more world hunger. And so I was like, I really do want to get past the idealism and all the naivete around what blockchain could do. And for me to really understand what I can talk to my clients about. And then, you know, when I run a company, like, how do I really understand my data stack? Um, when I have a team, I need to be able to really understand that. You know, at Set Compass, we have worked with other companies to launch labs. And so what we did with this is we teamed up with the World Economic Forum and said, let's work with the consortium and with several blockchain companies to fund some open source research to really understand where Web3 is at, what is the value of it, and like, let's get past all the ideological speak and just say practically what can it do, right? And to strip bit of all of its hype talk, of, of all the hype that's in the industry. I co-founded the Crypto Research and Design Lab. And for the last year, we've been on the ground researching what kinds of use cases are best for blockchain-enabled technology. So that's what I've been doing the last year. And one of my own personal takeaways is that in a world where we're becoming increasingly digital and we need to bring assets into the market, like new assets that we need to create and create a market around it, it is valuable to have a tool that shows the provenance of that asset and to scale that asset. And so the asset that I'm talking about that I'm most interested in right now is the biological asset of carbon. One of the reasons why carbon markets haven't worked out is because there's been a lack of transparency around them. And carbon is the one thing we know has proven that most scientists can agree on that if we draw down more carbon, because we're releasing tons of carbon, right? Essentially, we're all everything we're doing in modern life just releases tons of carbon from mono agriculture, industrial agriculture, to like cars, planes, everything. It just releases tons of you know carbon in the air. And so that's warming up the earth. And that's like wreaking havoc in climate change. And some places are getting colder, some are warmer, you know, it's more dangerous. And so we know we need to draw down carbon. The best thing to do to drop down carbon is through regenerative agriculture. But we don't know how to show the transparency of where carbon is from and to track the life cycle of that carbon. And so I'm really interested in a blockchain being applied to these kind of situations where we need to bring a new kind of asset onto the market. There's many applications of the blockchain. I just spoke to a bunch of business leaders about the implementation of blockchain in enterprise settings. And I think blockchain can be a misleading word because oftentimes in business settings, you don't need a permissionless, meaning it open blockchain. You can have something that is more like a distributed ledger technology where it's something that is open within a defined number of players because the most neutral definition of blockchain is something that's usually open, but you don't necessarily want everything to be open. So that's why I'm interested in blockchain as it applies to creating new kinds of markets for assets that we genuinely need as for the survival of our humanity. Yeah, let's dive into that example. So who would be the participants in this carbon market and how would they leverage blockchain in that use case? 
Yeah. So right now, the only people who can participate in the carbon markets, because there's no lack of transparency and it's very top-down controlled of who verifies, it's only companies that, and it's large companies that can afford spending hundreds of thousand dollars to be verified by a legacy carbon verifier. So one of the companies I advise is Reseed.Farm and they enable small shareholder farmers. So farmers with less than 500 acres to participate. And these farmers that generate 80% of our food supply system. And so the way they can participate is that they're using AI, they're using Google satellites, they're using IoT to track how a farmer manages their parcel of land so they can verify what they're doing, what kind of species they're growing that generates carbon that they're storing on their land. And what Reseed does is they bring this carbon to the market and they're able to sell this carbon to companies that want the carbon, but they also get a lot of data about that farmer and their whole entire supply chain system. So it is an incredible purchase for a company because not only are they able to say we've contributed to lowering our carbon footprint and helping the earth, but what they get along with it is this carbon that's wrapped in data about their own supply chain system. That is the most important thing for any company where you have a supply chain that involves farmers, which means you know a lot of consumer goods companies or food and beverage companies is that they need to have stable supply chains. It's the heart of their business. You don't have any product without a stable supply chain. So if they can stabilize their supply chain, they can get data. Your farmers also get money from that drawing down and saving the stewarding that carbon in their earth. And this is done in a transparent way. So not all of the data needs to live on the blockchain, but what they're designing is a way for at least a provenance of that carbon cannot be tampered with. And you know the origins if you buy carbon and then you're like, oh, I, I want to offset something, you don't know if the carbon you purchase, oftentimes when you purchase something, right, you get to like choose like, I want to offset my carbon $5 more. But you don't know if that carbon comes from like a mining company that said, oh, we're carbon neutral. But what they really did was they got rid of a bunch of villages, they bought off the land, they stole the land, right? not even bought, but oftentimes they steal the land, clear those people off the land and plant a bunch of trees. And they're like, okay, we have carbon. And that is not a equitable or sustainable way. That's an exploitive way of bringing carbon to the market, but you don't know that. And so what I'm excited about is having these new kind of carbon platforms like Reseed to be able to show the transparency of where something came from. And you can do that at scale. And what it does is it increases the price of carbon. And that is the one thing we know that we still have like a 10 year window of time where we can stop and possibly even reverse climate change. So you talk a little bit about this idea of like exploitation, which I think bridges a little bit into this concept that you've come up with or heard from others or discovered, which is called personhood. And I think, you know, super interesting to understand sort of this relationship between your digital personhood, the world of sort of crypto technologies and the blockchain, and then, you know, how that might build a more equitable world. So maybe dive in a little bit to this concept of personhood and tell us a little bit more about that and why you think it's important. So... I will start with this, making the statement that I firmly believe in is that we are more digitally human than we've ever been in the history of our humanity. What I mean by that is that we have more bits of ourselves because of all we are interacting in more digital ways. We're getting more things done digitally. You know, when we buy food, our transportation, everything that we do almost involves some kind of digital interaction. Those are bits of data of us that live somewhere. And so that means that we are now more represented increasingly day by day represented as a digital representation out there, a version of us, right? And there are data brokers that collect our data, our representations, and they are sold. 
or there are companies that have representations of us and they make decisions based off of the data they have, the first party data. We exist as first party data, we exist as third party data, and there's this whole world out there. I think it's becoming increasingly unmanageable. And I think people are now facing this question around like, well, what does it mean when so much of me is out there? And we need these services in the same way that we need our arm. You know, if you were to cut off my access to any of my social media, my email, I would literally be unable to be human. In the same way that if you were to like cut off a piece of my body part, like you can't just like do that because we are so dependent on these services. And so what my question is, what does it mean to be digitally human and how do we find a sense of humanity in this space? How do we operate as humans? And I think this all comes down to the question of what are companies, what are institutions going to do with our personal data? What is that social contract that we're going to have so that we can all trust interacting with these digital platforms? And I think increasingly what the implications are for businesses is that it really is about trust. It's about developing that trusted relationship that I am in exchange for this interaction you get a service, but I'm going to be handling your personal data. And this is what I'm going to do with it. And then you have to engender trust that you're going to do what you say, that you're not just going to do X, Y, Z, right? And I'm really interested in the new forms of exchange and interactions that are going to come from this. And one of the big problems that I see right now that's preventing us from moving forward is that we are totally stuck in the era of talking about privacy. It's really controversial what I'm going to say, and this is the topic of the book I'm writing, which is that I think we're barking up the wrong tree when we are trying to fight for privacy. You have a lot of advocacy groups and policies, state by state at the federal level, to really help people wrangle in and, and protect their privacy. And it's not that I'm against privacy. I think privacy is important. But I think we're missing the bigger thing that we should be fighting for. It's not privacy. It is our representation of ourselves. We should be fighting to have some control of the representations of ourselves out there. Because privacy is very much about saying, this is all of mine. And it implies that like, I can't give this up, you know? And so, but it's too late in order for us to even interact online. You have to give up parts of yourself. You have to give up data. There's no way. And so how this intersects with Web3 is that, you know, we're just in the beginning days. I don't think there's any clear solutions yet. But one of the, the questions that Web3 is exploring is, how do we give people more control of their personal data? How do we store data in a more distributed, decentralized way? Or how do we enable people to store their own data and give it up or be able to like decide when you have access to it? And so I'm really interested in figuring out, you know, seeing different experiments. I don't think it's only Web3. I think a really good example of this kind of personal data exchange where it's not stuck in the privacy world, but actually is in the representation world is Spotify. When at the end of the year, you get a representation, right? They say, this is like what you listen to the most this year. And like, these are your genres. And this is the kind of music you like. Well, that is really engendering trust because that's saying you generated data by using our platform and we generate data about you. And so we have all of that data. But now we're going to reflect it back to you, our representation of you. We're going to show you what our machines see when we're collecting data about you. 
And we're going to show it to you in a way where you're not scared about it. It's going to create more trust. It's going to make it feel more social. You can share and screenshot, like show your friends. You know, no one says this is Spotify's data representation of me by their data scientists or machine learning team. They don't say that, but it's just more like, hey, cool, look at my top five genres or top artists. Oh my God, I had no idea I was such a big Beyonce fan. But essentially what that person is saying, this is a representation of me. And wow, cool, how amazing this company did that. Um, And I think increasingly... The companies that will know how to do that well, which means you have to work more with your comms team and your design team, which is why I talk about as a designer, I bring that, that is like my value add of like, when you work with data, you have to have a design mindset when we want to make it useful to everyone, whether it's customers or other business partners, is that design is about making choices. Design is not just like pretty color here. Design is really at the heart about making choices. And how do you make transparent how you make those choices? Because everything is a choice. Everything is a design. There's no, no such thing that's neutral. And so how that relates back to personhood and representation is that I think personhood is the feeling of agency, that you still have self-determination. And right now, I think we're at an existential crisis where a lot of people feel that they don't have agency, that they've lost their personhood, not just with the internet, but they may feel that the, the government controls their personhood, right? Or that they don't have agency because the economy is so limiting, or they may have a four-year degree, but they're not able to self-determine the kind of career track because it feels like our economy is falling apart. And so is our banking system. Like There's all these things where in modern life where many people feel that they've lost a sense of their personhood. And personhood is not automatic. At one point, Black people were not considered people. They had to fight for the right to be seen as a person. And so my question is, how can we see people as people? How can we be seen as a person by the machines? How do the machines and how do companies help people feel that as you are generating more data about yourself and using these services and participating in modern life, how can you still retain a sense of agency? I had a friend who said they stopped using Facebook because they realized that the algorithm wasn't giving them information, wasn't ever surfacing the friends that they hadn't talked to in a long time. And they're like, those are the friends who were probably going through a hard time the most. I don't know. And she was like, I don't even know. My friend could have been suicidal or like going through a hard time, but I was only interacting with my feet with the loudest people who are posting the most. And she was like, I got a Facebook because I realized I wasn't staying in touch with like half of my friends. So in a way, she was talking about a feeling of loss of control with how the machine was surfacing back to her or her social network, right? And so I think these are the kind of questions that people are grappling with. And if we want people to use digital tools, our services, we need people to feel they trust the machines that we're asking them to use. Yeah, but there's obviously inherent conflict there because a company like Spotify might reflect back to you what you want, or it might reflect back to you what's most likely to get listened to, which might be different from what you want, but it might actually influence you. And so, you know, on some level, these algorithms are designed to influence you in some particular way. And that may or may not align with your self-image. And your self-image may not align in reality with what you actually do. And so there's some really tricky issues to deal with in order to get to some reflection of what my true personal reality is. I get it. I mean, I think you're right. And like, I remember when my Spotify came back and I was like, oh, apparently I, they're saying I love little black sheep or whatever. I don't know. I was like, no, I just played that a lot because I was with my nephew a lot that year. And like, we had to play that song to get him to sleep. You know, I'm like, that's not a representation of me, but you're right. There is, has to be a serious conversation about how these algorithms controls because we're in an attention economy 
and these algorithms do control our attention. And you see the kind of wars that are, you know, fake information, all the stuff that the algorithms are leading to. So I think part of it really comes down to us feeling that we also understand how these algorithms work. If this is why on my LinkedIn, I have half of the information is fake because I don't want the machine to fully feel like they know me. So I have like on there that I was like the CEO of a penguin colonizing company. I put fake information out there, half of it, because I'm trying to also understand how the machines see me so that they're not fully influencing me. So I think we're going to find these kind of acts of resistance. If anybody wants to read the world's best LinkedIn profile, go to Trisha's LinkedIn page. So you work with these CDOs and obviously you've advocated for them to work against quantification bias towards thick data. What do you see as the sort of leading edge, bleeding edge of where these folks are needing to invest and build skill sets within their companies? And How do you think about advising them around what they should be really thinking about that they're not thinking about right now? The biggest thing that I think a leading data science leader should be investing in is not in the common C's of like categorization and like cleaning data. It's in the other C's, which is culture, communication, and customers and collaboration. So these are the C's that, you know, we really work with and it is actually genuinely hard (laughs) to do. And your job as a chief data officer or a data leader in the company is, like I said before, data is only part of your job generating the quantification, right? To reflect back to the company. The other half is the bleeding edge is around communication and helping the rest of your business, your business counterparts to understand the value of this in a way that isn't scary and where they can see that it actually is going to improve their business. And so what's crazy is I think the hardest part is still saying that you've got to spend time with your customers. And this is a big topic in your podcast. And many of your guests have talked about this, right? Which is data is what you do, but you don't need to talk about it. Like AI could be what you have as a tool you have. Those are tools, you know, using machine learning, data governance are tools, but those are really big terms that are not only scary, but like they might not be immediately applicable because you need to talk about the outcomes that these tools lead to. And so it's really learning to become a better communicator and collaborator across the business and to say, you know, we are not in a silo. But that takes a really brave kind of leader to work that way because it's not just about having the light shine on you, but it's about you making others in your company successful. And it's also about courage, about raising the big questions of what could be missing. Again, do you want to risk your house on Lake Cuomo or whatever it is? Like it's, it takes courage to actually say to someone, hey, like the path that we're going on might not lead us to where you want us to go or what the company is defined as the outcome or may not be the best outcome. It may work for shareholders, but I see this potentially as a problem for our customers or for society. I don't know what, but like, it really takes a lot of courage to communicate and to collaborate. And I think in a time where our economy is going into a recession, what's called the rich session, it will take even more courage, especially for people in these kind of roles to think more expansively. But you really are at the heart of the business. It's really an asset that you are responsible for making even more valuable. Well, I have nothing to add on top of that. That was phenomenal. Trisha, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you, Satyan. (laughs) Often the most important truths aren't in the data, but out in the world that the data tries to represent. 
you can't quantify stories, emotions, or interactions. Yet these forces drive what the data just can't represent. As a tech ethnographer, Trisha is pushing cutting-edge businesses to learn from this kind of information, which she calls thick data, information that's just not easily quantified. So as much time as we're spending building models and moving around data, here's another exercise to make your team more radical. Get your data folks out of the building. Push them to visit the world of your customer. Encourage them to understand what makes their customers tick. What makes their pain points painful? What does the data fail to tell us? Thank you for listening to this episode, and thank you, Trisha, for joining. I'm your host, Sathya Sangani, CEO of Alation. And data radicals, stay the course, keep learning and sharing. Until next time. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. Let's meet up at the Databricks Summit this summer. We'll reveal how Alation data intelligence is key to your data lakehouse success. Get a first-hand look into how top organizations are simplifying cloud complexity with Alation and Databricks. The Data and AI Summit runs from June 26th to the 29th in San Francisco. We can't wait to connect. Learn more at databricks.com slash data AI summit.